So once again, we are reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 23. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in, in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to, down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is God's word. Thanks, Betsy. So for those of you who are newer, newer to our church, we're walking through First and Second Samuel, and uh, how we typically go through books of the Bible in our sermons is, we, or how we typically do preaching here, is we just walk through a book of the Bible, and we do that because uh, we're not here to gather to hear, you know, preachers' two cents on, you know, how to, how to have your best life now, but we just want to hear, like, what does God say in his word about who he is, and who are we in relation to him, and that's how we find joy, and we can live in the design with which God made us. That just hopefully um, gives you a little bit of insight into why we do what we do in terms of preaching. We just walk through books of the Bible line by line to see what does God have to say to us. So we're continuing in 1 Samuel, and what we're looking at tonight is the downfall of King Saul. So last week we looked at Saul being made king, and tonight we're now looking at the downfall of King Saul. And what you'll see is next week, in the very next chapter, we're going to see, we're going to meet David. Okay, so we're finally going to get to David next week. Um, so we're going to see the rise of King David beginning next week, and this is a deliberate narrative device that the author's doing, uh, because what we see here is by saying the fall of King Saul in chapter 15, and then immediately in the next chapter, the rise of uh, King David, what the author is doing is he's saying, okay, the fall of Saul and the rise of David, they coincide, they go together. And so the question should be, as we continue to go through First and Second Samuel is, will David fall in the same way that King Saul falls? And it's also, it's also meant to ask us as the reader, 
Well, we fall in the same way that, that King Saul falls. And this should give you pause because when you look at King Saul's life, like when you're first introduced to him, he's a pretty likable guy. Like he's not this overtly wicked dude when you first meet him. So when you first meet him, we didn't um, uh, go through his life in, in chapters 9 through 14, but when you first meet him, like you first introduced him because he's wandering around the hillside, like looking for his father's donkeys. He's just kind of like looking around and the, the people that he runs into, he's very amicable toward, like he's, he's a good natured guy. When he's, when he's crowned as king, like the people love him. And then even after he's crowned as king, there was a group of people that opposed him who didn't want him to be king. And Saul's supporters are saying, you know, Saul, you should put these people to death who opposed you. And Saul's like, guys, just calm down. <laughs> like today's a day of rejoicing. Like let's all just rejoice together. And so he is, he's not like an evil guy, but yet from here on out, he descends into madness and even violence. Like later on, he throws a spear at his own son, Jonathan. And so we need to ask like, what is it? What is it about Saul that made him spiral in, in, the, way that, in the way that he does? And so we're going we're gonna to see that tonight in this passage and hopefully learn uh, from you know, where, how Saul uh, failed, how we can succeed. And so here's how we'll walk through this passage. We'll just look at it through three lines. Um, first, we'll look at like, what are the ways that Saul falls in this passage? We'll just walk through the whole text, see how does Saul fall. Next, we'll look at why does he fall? It's like, what's the underlying reason that, that Saul spirals? And then number three, how can we succeed where Saul failed? So first, how does Saul fall? Okay, why does he fall? And then number three, how can we succeed uh, where Saul failed? Okay, so first number one, how does Saul fall? So in verse 10, at the beginning of our passage, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and God tells Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from me and has not performed my commandments. Okay, so what's the context here? You see the context in verses 1 through 9. We didn't read just for time's sake, but what happens in verses 1 through 9 is God tells Saul, I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to wipe them out. Now, this command, you know, God telling Saul to go wipe out a group of people, this, this troubles a lot of people. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this tonight. But if you have, you know, if you take issue with this, I know I have in the past, just feel free. We can talk about it after service. But before you get upset by God saying, go wipe out this group of people, the Amalekites, um, understand the reason why God is telling Saul to do this, it's not a random act of imperialism. It's not ethnic cleansing. What it is, it's an act of justice, because if you know who the Amalekites were, so you can read about it a little bit in Deuteronomy 25, when the Israelites were being brought out of, of Egypt in the Exodus, there were stragglers in the back of the, of the Israelites' line, you know, women, children, men who, who couldn't keep up. And what the Amalekites did is, as they were atrocious, violent people, they came after the Israelites and killed those who were, who were lagging behind. Uh, not to mention they were a very unjust and violent group of people overall. And so what do you do with a group of people who refuses to listen and continues to commit atrocities? Like over, like when you read the Old Testament, God gives people many, many times to repent. Eventually, what do you have to do? I mean, you have to do justice, right? And so that's what God is, is calling Saul to do. But what God tells Saul is he says, okay, when you, when you go into the Amalekites, I don't want you to take any plunder. And the reason why God tells Saul not to take any plunder is because Often when nations would go to war, you know, even if they say, okay, we're doing it in the name of, in the name of justice, really why a lot of nations would go to war is for self-benefit, right? So it's just a way to make themselves feel better or to go in and then take plunder so that they can benefit from other people's loss. 
And so when God tells Saul, wipe out the Amalekites, he says, I don't want you to be like the other nations where you go and do justice just in the name of, you know, in order to benefit yourself, but I don't want you to take any plunder because this isn't a means of of lifting yourself up or benefiting, it's just to do justice. So that's what God tells Saul to do. The thing is, is Saul doesn't do it. So he goes in and he does wipe out most of the Amalekites, but he keeps the king alive and he keeps a number of the, the best sheep and oxen and cattle, which was the form of currency back in the day. And so that's what, that's what Saul didn't obey. He, he ended up, Saul was like other kings. Okay, he went in, but then he took for himself. So this is what Samuel is confronting him on. So Samuel goes and he, in verse 12, he says, he rose early to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and be, or, uh, yeah, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So Samuel's like, okay, he's not here, so I'll go find, I'll go find Saul. So then finally Samuel finds Saul. And before Samuel says anything, in, in verse 13, Saul says, blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. So this, my friends, is what a guilty conscience looks like, <laughs> okay? Hey, Samuel, I obeyed. Okay, like if you're a, if you're a parent and you, you know, you're about to go out with your spouse and you look at your, your kids and you say, okay, guys, you know, I want you to clean your room while mommy and daddy are gone. You go out for a couple hours and you come back and, and you know, your son or daughter runs up to meet you and they're like, I clean my room. It's like, hmm. And you go up to their bedroom and you see that, you know, they just like stuffed all their clothes under their bed and in their closet like two minutes before you walked in the door. That's what's going on because Saul says, I, I obeyed, like I wiped out everything. And then... In verse 14, Samuel goes, then why do I hear sheep and oxen around the corner? It's like the equivalent of clothes sticking out of the closet or out from under the bed. He's like, Saul, I think you're lying. And, and Saul is lying. And so what you're going to see from here on out, and we're just going to walk through, Saul is incredibly self-deceived. Because Samuel's going to keep probing, and Saul's going to blame shift. He's going to deny, uh, because he's living in self-deception. And self-deception is, and this is important because this is going to get to like why Saul is acting the, the way that he is. What's self-deception? Self-deception is when you, you know something about yourself on one level, but that truth is so painful to look at that you suppress it and you just ignore all data that seems to confirm it. And you just, you know, you, you look the other way. You do everything that you can to not look at this truth of what you know about yourself that's so painful. And it, it's so easy to be self-deceived. Um, I remember one of the times I saw this uh, clear as day was, was, this was a few years ago, and my father-in-law uh, took me out as a Christmas present. He wanted to buy me a few new uh, uh, pairs of suit pants uh, because I had transitioned into pastoral ministry. Now, before becoming a pastor, I used to work as a full-time strength coach. These are two very different vocations when it comes to activity levels, right? So as a strength coach, I'm on my feet all the day. I'm on field. I'm leading teams. I'm in the weight room, you know, demonstrating exercises and so forth. As a pastor, I... I sit and I meet with people. I sit and I study. I sit and I eat. Okay, so, so, I, so I go out to uh, get some new clothes with my father-in-law, and we're at Men's Warehouse, and I try on you know, a pair of pants, the same size pants that I had worn like, for the last decade as a strength coach, and like, I, I couldn't, they didn't fit. They, they were too tight. And I, I looked at it. I was dead serious. I, just, I was like, John, like, they must make the pants slimmer here. Like... I guess, you know, a size 30 here is like a size 26 elsewhere. And he looks at me, and like, we have a good relationship, so he's able to say something like this. But he just looks at me and goes, or Steve, a, a pant size is a pant size. 
And this is serving as a nice objective measurement to show you something that you're clearly in denial about. And I was like, how dare you? I thought I had your blessing. And, you know, but and I, I even like continued to, I was like, okay, okay. But like, I, I, there was still a part of me that believed, okay, just these pants are a little differently made. The point is what? Okay, there is a truth that I like to believe about myself. Okay, I'm the kind of person who doesn't gain weight because I counsel others on how to eat well and I counsel others on how to exercise. That this, this truth, in a way, was, was too painful to look at, that I was legitimately self-deceived. And so that's what's going on here with Saul. Like he, is, he is so self-deceived about what he's done that he will refuse to look at the truth about what Samuel is telling him. Okay, so let's just see how it plays out. So verse 15, after Samuel calls him out on the fact that he can hear sheep and oxen that are still alive, Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, what? For the people spared the best of the sheep. So now Saul is blame shifting. Okay, it's not my fault. The people spared the sheep. Even though in verse 9 it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. And even the verb there is used to imply that Saul was the primary actor. So Samuel's like, okay, so the people took the sheep, but who was commanding them to, Saul? So now now he's blame shifting. Okay, um, so then finally Samuel, it's almost as if he gets fed up in verse 16. Samuel just says, stop. Okay, just stop it, Saul. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And so Saul tells him to speak. Verse 17, Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Okay, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So he's just calling him out. Like, you got clear mission. You clearly didn't obey. And then what does Saul say in verse 20? I have obeyed. Okay, he's just digging his ditch. Okay, he's just refusing to admit anything. I, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission, which the Lord sent me. Okay, yeah, yeah, King Agag, I, I kept, but whatever. But I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Then verse 21, again, blame shifting. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord, your God. Okay, so first it's telling that he says, the Lord, your God. So you can already see Saul starting to distance himself, you know, from God. He's your God. He's not my God. But what does Saul say? He says, okay, we disobeyed a little bit, but the reason we disobeyed was to sacrifice. Like we disobeyed to serve the Lord, to worship. Like, I remember uh, when I started the seminary, one of my teachers was just warning me of how easy it is for somebody who's in full-time ministry to use ministry as an excuse for disobeying and sinning. And he just gave me an example of one of his students. He caught cheating on an exam. And he called the student in to, to call, this was in seminary, okay? So the student's cheating on an exam. He, my teacher calls him in to just, it was clear as day, you know, nowhere to escape. He's like, dude, why'd you cheat on the exam? And the student looks at him with a straight face and says, well, I need to graduate seminary so that I can go into full-time ministry. And my teacher was like, what do you, dude, you're in seminary. Like, you want to go become a pastor then, like, help them live out the ethics of, you know, once you're in the, the kingdom of Jesus, what are you doing? And the, the kid just held his ground. He said, no, you don't understand. Like, pastor, I, I need to go serve the Lord. And so I need to graduate seminary first so that I can then go serve the Lord. He was, he was completely self-deceived. And he, he wasn't owning it, just like Saul's not owning it here. And it might be easy to, to laugh at something like that, but I mean, like, how easy is it to 
come to church on Sunday and, you know, you know, sing in Christ alone, but then go out Monday through Saturday and essentially just live how you please. Or it's like, okay, well, yeah, I, I tithe and I serve on a service team. So like, God, just look at these things I'm doing, but don't look at this thing, you know, shiny over here, <laughs> you know, because of all these, all these ways that I worship you and obey you. But yeah, okay, this one thing over here, you minimize your disobedience, right? And you maximize the things that you're doing well. And that's what, that's what Saul's doing. He just, he, he won't see it. And why God tells him in, in verse 22 through Samuel um, to obey is better than sacrifice. Like what God's saying is he's saying, okay, Saul, yes, do I, do I delight in sacrifice? Yes, of course I love it when my people worship me. But I want you to obey because when you obey, then I have you. Like Saul, I don't just want your worship. I want all of you. I want your entire heart. I want your entire life. And because when you obey, like when you do things for the Lord, even against what your desires may be telling you, that's a way of showing God, like, you have all of me. You have all of my life, all of my heart. And that's what God wants for Saul. So then verse 24, uh, Saul says to Samuel in response to Samuel's rebuke of to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul says to Samuel, okay, so now he looks repentant. He says, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now we're starting to get at the crux of the matter. So I was like, okay, I did disobey, I did sin, okay, but it's because I feared the people. Saul really cares about how other people perceive him. Okay, so just remember that, so let's keep going. So he says, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So by Samuel returning with Saul to go back to the people, that, that's a sign that God has forgiven Saul because Samuel is God's prophet. So he's saying, Samuel, will you just walk by my side, return with me so that people will see that God has forgiven me. And Samuel says, Saul, I won't return with you. For you've, this is uh, verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Samuel turns away and now Saul starts to panic and it says Saul sees the skirt of his robe and it tore and Samuel says just as this robe has torn so so God will tear the kingdom of Israel from you. And then in verse 30 Saul says okay I've sinned and then this is where just everything's revealed. He says yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. You see First, Saul tries to deny it completely. Then he blame shifts. Then he says, okay, I disobeyed a little bit, but look at all, you know, the, look at all these good things I've done. Then finally, when he has nowhere else to turn, he repents, but why is he repenting? He's not repenting because he's actually grieving his sin. He's repenting because he knows now people are going to look down on him as king. He essentially says, all I care about isn't a relationship with God, isn't repenting. All I want is the honor of my people. And that's at the heart of what Saul's problem is. Okay, so we just looked at how Saul falls, okay? All the, um, he's, in self he's in the midst of self-deception. Uh, he, he's denying, he's blame-shifting. Why did Saul fall? Go back to verse 17. This is where Samuel nails it. Verse 17, Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, this is at the heart of Saul's downfall. Saul, your problem isn't that you think too much of yourself. Your problem is that you think too little of yourself. Your problem isn't you know, hubris per se. Your problem is insecurity. And when you hear this, it makes you read the prior chapters. It makes you see things you didn't used to see. 
So you, you notice this about Saul, like all, you know, all throughout his biography. So first, when, when Samuel tells him earlier on, like, Saul, you're going to be made king, like one of the first things Saul says is he says, aren't I of the tribe of Benj- Benjamin, the least of all the tribes? And within Benjamin, isn't my clan the least of all the clans? Like he's emphasizing how small he is. Um, and then after Samuel uh, tells Saul that, that he's going to be king, like Saul runs into his uncle on the way back, and his uncle goes, you know, what did Samuel tell, tell you? And the text says Saul didn't tell his uncle about the fact that he was going to become king. Why? Because he was, he was so insecure. Like he didn't even want other people to know because, you know, I'm way too underqualified for the job. And then it says, and this is, it's kind of amusing, but in chapter 10, I believe, where they are actually going to like crown him as king, no one can find Saul. They're like, where's Saul? And what happens is, is Saul is, he's hiding in the baggage. I don't really know what that means. I think it's like all the, the saddles and the travel gear, they're in this big pile. And Saul's like hiding in it. And, you know, Saul's this huge dude, probably around seven feet tall, like, you know, really good looking. But he's like, like peeking over the edge because he doesn't, he doesn't want to go out and have everybody acknowledge him as king. Why? Because he thinks so little of himself. He's, he's so insecure. And because the thing is, is so every human being has to find a, a self-image somewhere, right? Um, and so you, you find it in any number of things. You find your, you know, and whatever you find your self-image in, like whatever threatens that self-image, you're going to be blind to, you're, you're not going to look at it, you're, you're going to blame shift. And what Saul found his self-image in was the fact that he, w- he was a great king, a competent king. So if you go back to verse 12, it says, um, Saul erected a monument for himself. Okay, so he wants everybody to see like how great of a king he is. And then when you, when you find out that he kept Agag, it's like, what's the whole deal with Saul keeping the king alive? When Saul erects a monument to himself and he keeps the king alive, what Saul is saying is, he's saying, I'm not just a king. I'm a king who lords over other kings. I'm a king of kings. I'm an emperor. Okay, because he's so insecure, like he has to prop up his self-image however he can. And however you find a self-image, like you will erect a monument of sorts and try to get everybody to look at it. Okay, so I'm an intelligent person. I'm a beautiful person. I'm competent at my job. I'm a progressive person. I'm a conservative person. I'm an orthodox person. I'm a good follower of Jesus. Like you can do it with your following of Jesus Christ. Look at what I'm doing. And you don't want to look at anything that threatens that self-image. And so just ask yourself, like, where in my life have I erected essentially a monument to myself? And one of the ways that you know where you're trying to erect a monument to yourself is, like, where are you very touchy when people criticize you in a certain area? Um, where are you, like, where are you blind to if anybody were to try to, like, just confront you on something, would you, would you deny it? And so because an example of this is, so like for me, this is kind of a more lighthearted example, even though this is a really serious issue, but so for me, I'm a, I'm a terrible golf player. Okay, I have no sense of self-image in my golf abilities. And so you can mock me on my skill, and I'll be like, yeah, I'm awful at golf. Why? Because none of, none of my self-image is wrapped up in my ability to hit a golf ball. 
But I was thinking back to, you know, when I first graduated from college and I was working as a strength coach, you know, like a lot of people who just graduated from school and I was, you know, still ongoing process to find my identity in Jesus. So much of my self-image was tied in the fact that I am a good strength coach. Like I get athletes stronger, I get them faster, I keep them healthy. And there was this one time where a parent, you know, after his kid's session ended, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, you know, like our package is, is running out. And I just... Honestly, I don't think you guys are really doing it for him, and so I'm going to, you know, take my son elsewhere where I think he can get better results. And immediately I was like, well, maybe your kid isn't getting results because, you know, he, he skips half his sessions, and when he does show up, he, you know, he, he, he works half-heartedly. And I, I didn't say it like that, but it's, it's, what I was, it's what I was thinking. But, like, what was happening? Like, I was doing everything I could to blame shift. It's your son's fault. Blame the dad. Well, you've been skipping. You know, you've been, like, taking him on all these trips, and he's shown up, you know, once every three weeks. Like, what do you think's going to happen? But I was refusing to look at, okay, where could I be encouraging this child more? Where could I be helping them succeed, like, given the constraints? I refused to look at it because I couldn't admit to myself that me and the other coaches I worked with, like, there was an area where we could, where we could grow. So just where, like, where have you erected a, a, a monument to yourself? Because for Saul, it started out small, but because he couldn't be confronted on his disobedience, on his sin, because he placed so much of his image and his um, ability to be king, eventually he just spiraled into madness and God rejected the kingship from him and Saul rejected God. And so what's the solution? Okay, how can we succeed where Saul failed? And like when you look at modern approaches to, in case we're talking a little bit about insecurity, you know, having a low sense of self-worth, a lot of how like modern counseling approaches this is like counselors are told to, you know, if somebody comes in for therapy, you just need to affirm them. Like affirm them, affirm them, affirm them. Like help them like see what's good about themselves and don't really talk about their, their you know, like the bad parts about themselves. Just like keep affirming them. Now, do you need affirmation? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so not saying you, you don't need affirmation. The, the problem is, is when the main and sometimes the only approach is just to affirm, affirm, affirm. Like, here's how good I am. Yes, I can do it. One is, at the end of the day, no one knows your flaws more than you do. And so no matter how many times you try to tell yourself, like, okay, I'm, I'm a motivated person. I'm a, I'm a gifted person. I can do it. What do you do about that voice that still is speaking to you about all the areas where, where you failed? And number two, when all you do is just affirm, 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 now it, it's, it's essentially the same problem because insecurity is a form of pride because you're so fixated on yourself. Here's where I'm falling short. Here's where I'm failing. Self-affirmation, when that's all you do, that's just another form of pride because, again, you're just looking, with, looking within, Okay, it, it's, still fixated, it's still fixated on self. And so how can you have a sense of self-worth that, stills allow, that still allows you to acknowledge your flaws okay, and the things that you don't like about yourself, but have incredible confidence in who you are? And Samuel gives it to Saul. It's, it's a little hidden, but it's there. So after he says, Saul, in verse 17, you are little in your own eyes, are you, not the head of tribes of, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And then what does he say? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You see what he's saying? Saul, though you were small, through sovereign grace, God chose you. God elected you. God put you where you are. Okay, despite all the shortcomings that you have. So there, there's a place in 
Deuteronomy chapter seven, where uh, Moses is telling the people why God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And what he tells them is he says, God didn't choose you because you're so great in number, but because he loves you. And then he goes on to say, he says, he loves you because he loves you. Not he loves you because you're a great in number, but he loves you because he loves you. So that's circular reasoning, right? But how, how it works out is like this. So I once heard a teacher, he, was, um, he did a teaching on Deuteronomy 7. But he says, okay, so say you're a husband and your wife uh, comes up to you and she just asks, why do you love me? Okay, first understand that in this moment, everything is on the line, okay, in your response. So what do you say? Do you say, oh, well, honey, I love you because you're, you're so beautiful, you have a great figure. Um, I love you because you're, you're, you're brilliant, uh, you're awesome at your career, you're a great mom. Do you say, I love you because we get to go to shows together, we get to go get good food together, you know, we get to go, we get to go hiking together. And he says, if you say any of those things, it, it'll make her feel good for a minute, but if she's perceptive, and wives are, it'll, it'll start to make her very uneasy. Why? Because essentially what you're saying is, I love you because of these qualities about you that benefit me in some way. So what happens if she gains weight as she gets older? What happens if she has a brain injury and she's no longer intelligent? Okay, what happens if she gets in a car accident and she's paralyzed and she can no longer go hiking with you? Okay, now what's your reason for loving her? You want to say, no, the only answer that you should give and the only answer that can fill the soul of another human being is, I love you because I love you. I don't love you because any of these qualities you have that, that benefit me. I, I love you just because I love you because I love you. And that's, that's what God is trying to tell Saul. He's like, Saul, you think I made you king because you're this incredibly like wise dude who never screws up and you're so, no, I just, I chose you because I chose you because I love you. And I want you to be the king that leads my people. And in the New Testament, we have a more clear version of this where Paul, in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing a very discouraged pastor who's facing impossible odds. And he says in verse 9, Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. In other words, God saved you and called you not because of any merit in you, but because of his own purpose and grace, because he loved you. And then what does he say immediately after that? How did, how did, how did God do it? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. You see, Saul, he was a king who was small. And because he was so small, he tried to lift himself up by, by taking from other people. But King Jesus, King Jesus was great beyond all imagining. He had more beauty than we could ever bear to look at. But yet, instead of taking Jesus Christ, what he gave, he emptied himself and became small, literally became an infant and lived on the margins throughout his life. And then even at his trial, like Pilate looked at him and he goes, you're Jesus? <laughs> like you're the king of the Jews? You're not that impressive. And then he went to the cross, 
to take all of your flaws, all of your sin, all of your disobedience. Why? Because you're such a great flawless person? No, because he loves you. (laughs) The whole time during his life and on the cross was his way of showing you and telling you, I love you because I love you. (laughs) Is that not enough? And it's by taking this reality into your heart that turns you into gold. Because you're able to look at your flaws and yeah, somebody might criticize you and if somebody criticizes you, you can say, yeah, (laughs) I am weak. I'm not perfect. But Jesus chose me. (laughs) I don't know why, but he chose me. (laughs) And he gave his life for me. And he loves me because he loves me. That's what changes your heart. And so what do you do with this application? First, well, first if you're here and you, and you don't know Jesus, I, just, I, I hope what you're hearing is not, this is not a passage on how to get a better self-esteem. Does Jesus help your self-esteem? Absolutely. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, um, Christ wants you. He loves you. He's given himself for you. And what this passage is about is just repenting of all the ways that you try to live without Jesus as king in your life and say, I am a sinner. I am in need of grace. Please, God, accept me not based on anything I've done, but all based on what Jesus Christ has done because of his own goodness and mercy. And if you're a follower of Jesus, first I'd say, where in your life have you erected a monument to yourself? Okay, that, that's not Jesus Christ. And if you say, I haven't erected a monument to myself, you're, you're lying. Okay, you probably need a Samuel in your life to, to, to show you, okay, here's, here's where you're finding your sense of self-worth outside of the fact that Jesus Christ has given himself for you. But second, and this is what I want you, this is like the, the main thing, is Saul's problem was he was so insecure in the calling God had given him. He wasn't confident in the vocation God had given him because he kept thinking like, here's where I've fallen short. And a lot of Arlington, a lot of Arlington DC people are pretty similar to Saul. I mean, Saul was good looking. He was wealthy. He was competent. And that, that, that's Arlington DC people. Um, but yet he was so insecure. That's also a lot of Arlington DC people. Incredibly gifted, incredibly smart, yet radically insecure. And so my plea to you and that God's plea to you through this passage is to have, I can't overstate this, have so much confidence in who you are and who you are as a person in the relationship that, in the relationships that you have, in the job that you have. Why? Because you're so great. No, because of God's work in you through Jesus Christ and God's choosing of you. Like, it is not a mistake that you're in the career path that you are now, even if you're going to change. Like, where you are today, God did not make a mistake in putting you where he has you. Okay, God, had, God was having a great day when he came up with the idea of you and made you. And I think just so many of you, there's this insecurity, you're just always, you know, questioning yourself. You should have so much confidence. Like, Christians should have the most confidence in their vocations. Not because we're so awesome, 
but because even when we, even when we fail, God uses that to grow us and uses it for his purposes. So no, no matter where you are, I, just, I, I hope you c- can approach your relationships, neighborhoods, workplaces in, in a whole new light, knowing God has chosen you, not somebody else to be where you are. He's chosen you. <laughs> He's given himself for you. He's gifted you with a unique set, a unique personality, a unique history to bring his kingdom and bring his name in the areas that you live in and work. Okay, to a, to a hurt, a hurting and broken world. So have confidence in God choosing you because of his own purpose and grace. Let's go to him in prayer. us from the downfall and spiral that Saul experienced, Lord. Help us to see uh, where we're finding our sense of self, our sense of worth that's apart from the fact that you love us. And help us to um, run headlong with confidence, uh, knowing that you've made us uh, with a very uh, specific purpose and you delight in us because of your goodness and mercy. So help us a church to act confidently, Lord, to see where we need to grow and to do that and yet to also um, just be bold because, because you're with us and because that you've made us new through your Holy Spirit and um, the work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.